0: Greetings, dear listeners. Our good friend Jason Willick is back on the show to talk about the Supreme Court, but deeper things as well. What is legitimacy? How do you get it, and how do you keep it? What is the law, and what role does politics play in how we decide things? Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation, as well as other subscriber-only benefits. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. <laughs>
1: You know, so guys, I mean, I was thinking that I could just start with maybe a more general question, because I'm different than Demir in the sense that I actually made a pretty conscious effort to not develop a strong opinion on the Supreme Court in recent weeks, because there have been, as far as I can tell, two pretty important cases, one having to do with affirmative action, the other on student debt relief. And I actually said this in my recent Monday note, which we can include a link to in the show notes, with the somewhat, you know, uh, odd title of Scattershot Impressions from a Lost Realm. That's uh, actually a pretty good title. I know what it means. If, but I, I, would just... if I do say
0: so myself. <laughs> so but basically,
1: I, basically, I do have a fear of developing, um... oops, Siren, hold on.
0: That's fine. Oh man! Oh, it's probably me. Edit. Oh no no fine no
1: no I'll continue because continue on. It's a city, you know. Cities have sirens. Yeah, we live. We live
0: in a big bad city with lots of bad (laughs) stuff happening outside.
1: But I, I sort of offered up this note of caution. Like, there, I don't know if I want to actually follow it closely enough to develop a strong opinion about either of those two particular rulings, because I feel like. There is serious potential blowback on anything having to do with the Supreme Court. If you don't like express a good opinion on the Supreme Court, like there's just no end to the kinds of personal attacks and people assuming the worst about you. I don't know if that's changed. And maybe it's actually more. Maybe people feel more empowered to actually come out and say, well, Hmm. This supposedly evil Supreme Court, with all these conservatives, maybe they did a good thing this time. I don't know if you. Could, I don't know if you're supposed to say that, or if people are saying that. But um, but I, uh, you know, I, I have, I, I have un, I have not super well formed opinions and instincts on this. About but affirmative action. But Jason, maybe just to get <laughs> what? Sorry Demir? about
0: affirmative action. Yeah. <laughs>
1: But maybe, Jason, just give us like an overall sense, especially for for those people who maybe don't follow the institutional ins and outs of like Supreme Court gossip and all of that. Like what is like what should a layperson really understand about what just happened and the meaning of these two particular rulings? But probably the affirmative action one
2: is is probably
1: more interesting and spicy for our purposes.
2: The opinion saying that affirmative action was unconstitutional and the opinion saying that Biden wasn't allowed to pardon, forgive student loans unilaterally. I mean, they were fairly straightforward. And frankly, we're learning now popular decisions. We're increasingly learning that the affirmative action one in my column, I I think I cite a poll saying plus 20 popularity, like 52 to 32, something like that. And then there was another poll, I think it might have been from YouGov showing plus 30 popularity. It's a, you know, not that surprising because when you put in front of voters in states, they've done it in California, you know, should affirmative action be legal? They put they phrase it in a, in in a way like should the UC and government employers be allowed to make preferences based on race, gender, sexual orientation, ethnicity, etc people vote no in deep blue california people have voted no in michigan i believe they voted no in oregon so it's just a fairly popular thing this this is something that upset um a lot of people in washington and a lot of academics but it's a instance where the divide the supreme court is on the probably the right side of public opinion probably less so on the student loan thing but still fairly popular i think the poll i saw it was at about a five-point margin, but they're fairly normal rulings. They're fairly normal. Use um, the right
1: side of popular opinion, but what about the right side of history?
2: <sighs> <sighs> I think. Look, I think history history is is complicated. I think. Um, <laughs> history, this the probably has has. Is moving against racial preferences. I mean, the United States is a is a peculiar place when it comes to racial preferences because we have this this history um, with slavery and the rest of it. I think I sent you guys that piece by Chris Christopher Caldwell talking about how the demographic change of the United States in you know since the nineteen sixties has been so profound as to kind of make racial preferences as they were originally conceived incoherent. Because we now have so many different ethnic groups, people from all different parts of the world, such that the the sort of reparations rationale for affirmative action doesn't make sense because actually Asian Americans suffered a lot of discrimination. It's no coincidence that, you know, the other Supreme Court cases, Fisher versus Texas, Bakke versus University of California, Grutter v. Bollinger, these other landmark cases where the Supreme Court has upheld affirmative action in some complex way have involved white plaintiffs, These involved Asian plaintiffs um, because now they're the ones um, who are probably getting a preference against them in some of these admissions. To what
1: extent is there an anti-Asian preference in practice? Because I think that might be surprising to some people who assume that affirmative action means that if you're a minority, um, that can help you potentially in the admissions process. But clearly it's doing something quite different for a very specific minority. And maybe can you just lay out a little bit the dynamics around the role of Asians, particularly in Harvard?
2: Sure. And I and I have some personal experience because because you're Asian, because as an Asian as well, (laughs) I'm you know, I am Jewish and the the uh, there were preferences. You know, interestingly, um, we can maybe link this in the show notes, but I interviewed Nathan Glazer, who is the neo conservative, I guess, intellectual, but he wrote a lot about ethnic ethnicity in the United States. He was a famous sociologist. He wrote Beyond the Melting Pot in the 1960s about the different ethnic groups in New York. And I went to interview him in Cambridge before he died. And he was somebody who was, I I think he he was probably born in the, the 1920s, and he was discriminated against. He didn't get into Harvard. He went to City University of New York. A lot of these Jewish intellectuals grew up in New York, went to City University of New York, were denied from the Ivies under their Uh, Jewish quotas, and it was interesting talking to him actually because he kind of said, "Well, it makes sense for there to be some sort of, um, you know, if if you did this based on pure merit, Jews would constitute forty percent of Harvard or twenty percent of Harvard or whatever the case may be, and these institutions have some obligation to be representative." Um, So I thought I thought that that was interesting. His his sort of uh, he sort of took a a more um, laid back. Um, approach to discrimination he had he had experienced when so he ju- applied. Just, to, that, to, just
0: like. to clarify, right? I mean the, the the mapping on there is that that if to to get to Shadi's point, like explicitly, if uh, Asians at, at current rates were on pure merit reasons let into uh, the most elite institutions, they'd be vastly overrepresented compared to their actual uh, percentage in the population. That's the that's the gist of it, right?
2: <sighs> yes, I mean. And of course, Asians could mean Vietnamese, Koreans, Chinese Americans, second generation, third generation, first generation, Indian, you know, the, the Supreme Court opinion sort of noted the incoherence of, of some of these categories between South Asian and East Asian. But I was, what I was initially going to say was I went to UC Berkeley um, to, at the start of college and I transferred and graduated from Stanford. And so those are, you know, two universities, major research universities in the Bay Area, and UC Berkeley has a much larger Asian population, in part because um, it's been banned by voter initiative in California. And the UC admissions officers are not allowed to see your race. When you fill out, I think this is this was correct, um, you know, when you fill out the common application for private schools, you put in your race, or they ask you to. Now, probably lots of people are not doing it or are fudging it or whatever. But in the UC system, they weren't allowed to do it, and they were more formulaic in their admissions based on GPA and SAT scores. And so UC Berkeley and UCLA, well, and frankly, all the University of California systems. I mean, California has a large population of Asian Americans, but the UCs had a lot of, you know, probably when I was there, probably 40%, 45%, wow. something like that of Asian American students. And probably at Stanford, it would have been 25%. So that's, you know, and of course, and I always tell people this because people don't don't notice this when you ban affirmative action only for UC Berkeley uh but you don't ban it for for Harvard that puts Berkeley at a big disadvantage to getting black and hispanic students because if those students get into Harvard they might get you know Harvard's really going to recruit them whereas Berkeley you know is barred from from um from knowing people's uh race so anyway it's a whole complicated thing but you're absolutely right that if um, there there were not racial preferences there would probably be more and almost certainly be more asian american students at the very top universities
0: but so you know jason I, what you're writing and obviously we're colleagues now um so I, I i read your writing uh even more frequently than i did when we were just friends um but your your uh the 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 thrust of your writing um on a lot of these sorts of cases. I mean, you're talking about popularity as, as one sort of metric, uh, but the, the, the broader underlying theme in your writing has been about um, questions of the Supreme Court's legitimacy and uh, attacks in, on its legitimacy uh, ever since we've had this, you know, uh, 6-3 conservative court uh, by liberals saying, uh, and basically, trying to find any reason to basically, you know, call out this legitimacy. On the one hand, you know, there's a very sort of uh, easy take here, which is, uh, as you pointed out on both, uh, certainly on the affirmative action stuff, but uh, on the, uh, even on the student loan, uh, by some narrow margin, these are, these have been popular decisions. Um, But, but it's not just popularity that, that, that sort of, Legitimacy hangs on, right I mean it's you, you wrote a column basically saying, I, I forget what the title was like, sorry, sorry Libs uh, the Supreme <laughs> Court is not in a in a um, in a crisis of legitimacy, but talk a little bit more about about um, where the court's legitimacy comes from because I think there's like a lot of really interesting stuff that most people just don't think about when we when we talk about the court
2: yeah, I think no one totally. Knows. I mean, the, the famous line from, I think, Hamilton in the Federalist Papers was when he said that it will have the judiciary will have neither force nor will, uh, only judgment. So or, or his, his point basically being that the Congress pulls the purse strings and it can uh, cut off money and, and direct the flow of money in a way to sort of enforce what it wants to happen. And the executive has the guys with guns at, his, at its disposal Um, to make things happen that it orders to happen. The Supreme Court is just saying what it thinks the law is and hoping that other people submit to it. So it's sort of like I think, Demir, you quote uh, uh, from that Edmund Morgan book uh, where he quotes David Hume about legitimacy. You know, this this sort of amazing feature of human civilization where some people submit to, to what other people say, even if, you know, if collectively they don't necessarily have to, but they they agree to do it. And I think, you know, and frankly, one way that I part ways with some on the right is they think legitimacy is just, you know, originalism or textualism. It means, you know, following exactly uh, what the law says or what its original meaning was, uh, following the text, and that will create legitimacy. That means people will follow. If you are doing your job as sort of um, uh, as a judge, that means, you know, taking no account of the social context and things like that. And, you know, I I generally do think, you know, you should start with the the text and the original meaning and judges should follow the law as faithfully as possible. But that's just not how the Supreme Court initially got its legitimacy and got people to follow its rulings. I mean, John Marshall was the first chief justice of the United States. And he sort of had to negotiate um, and and be uh, kind of clever to get the court in a position where its rulings would be followed. And I think Justice Breyer, the retired Democrat Bill Clinton appointee, gave a good talk about this, where he sort of talked about how the court has traditionally done things like this. I mean, he, he gives as an example, I think, Loving versus Virginia, the decision banning the um, Uh, states that are overturning state bans on interracial marriage and he sort of says you know the court could have done that earlier but it wasn't gonna it wasn't sure it was gonna be enforced and so if it you know reached out and and made a decision that wasn't enforced that might not have been good in the long term for for the cause just to
0: to highlight that right i mean funny the the loving case is about interracial
2: loving but (laughs) yeah good good selection
0: <laughs> but the but the the point but the point there is right is that that they 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 went for the uh more obviously legitimate in the public's eyes school busing case first before they tackled something that was much more contentious and it took them like 5 6 years to get to the more contentious one right like that's a, so it's like they they sequenced it in that way like so it was largely playing to popular uh Acceptance, right? In that sense. So it is sort of playing that sort of legitimacy through popularity game.
2: Right. And that's sort of, you know, that's like prudential judicial politics, I think. It's not like, oh, we're going to take this case and rule the way the law doesn't say because, you know, it's unpopular or because it would be unpopular if we followed the law. It's sort of, you know, we're going to kind of sequence things so that we can follow the law correctly and get maximum support for it. Because And in Breyer's speech, he also talks about Eisenhower um, sending um, National Guard troops to enforce the desegregation of a school in Arkansas. There was just, you know, J.D. Vance sent a letter to the senator from Ohio. The Republican senator sent a letter to some colleges sort of threatening them to comply with the Supreme Court's ruling and sort of trolling them, but not really trolling them by saying, you know, we, we know the history of other of of schools not complying with the Supreme Court's orders for racial equality. Now, cuz there is really a question of enforcement. Um you know, when okay. the, if the Biden administration mm. doesn't want this to happen, you know, that 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 so I think I think one element of legitimacy is uh you know, is your decision followed? And I think, you know, we have three branches of government and none of them are automatically followed, but I kind of think you know, the court can't go totally against both unified branches of government and states there needs to be it's like it's like in diplomacy if there's you know multiple countries in a conflict you know if 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 they're all about equally strong you know probably one of their will is not going to prevail just realistically it's not going to prevail unless you know they at least have the acquiescence or the support of other branches so isn't it true though that
1: popularity is a kind of double-edged sword and I feel like people are just remarkably inconsistent when it comes to how they judge Supreme Court decisions. It actually kind of annoys me. But um, so, for example, last year with the Dodds decision, um, you know, uh, you know, shooting down Roe v. Wade on abortion access, at least on um, as a sort of constitutional guarantee that in that case, you um, you had a lot of liberals saying, well, the court is going to lose legitimacy because it's doing something that's quite unpopular. Roe v. Wade is popular. And they're making a very clear suggestion there that court should rule in line with the march of progress. And the march of progress here is clear because more and more Americans want um, abortion access to be um guaranteed by the supreme court. But then of course we have a little bit of an odd situation now that uh, something that is quite popular as you said Jason which is um uh ending racial preferences. I don't even know what liber- I don't I haven't been following so I actually don't know what liberals are saying because if if they are all about the popularity um principle then how do they make sense of the fact that this time the supreme court ruled in line with popular preferences do they just completely flip their position without any pretense to coherence or consistency or is there actually an argument they can make that um i don't even know like i think it would be very hard to but like i'm sure there's a way to twist yourself into some kind of explanation but i think there's also like a more general thing that I don't expect any, I don't expect really any prominent, prominent, you know, uh, analysts or pundits or even politicians, I don't think there's any longer an expectation for them to be consistent on anything resembling first principles. So we're not even like pushing them on this because we no longer
2: expect it from them. That's true i mean especially with supreme court discourse i mean it's like how dare they overturn precedent or you know how dare they let this unjust precedent stand or you know on the shadow docket uh they didn't act on the shadow docket or they did act on the shadow docket the shadow docket being sort of emergency orders uh rather than you know fully considered cases but i mean it really does seem like the discourse on the supreme court especially is um hypocrisy all the way down, including among the justices, you know where you know you have Elena Kagan in the student loans case being like, "How dare you, John Roberts, you know, try to tell the executive branch what to do when she was in the majority um telling you know the Trump administration about that it couldn't add a question to the census that it couldn't reverse immigration policies I mean these are you know, and the thing about the law, I'm not a lawyer, but I read a lot of opinions and follow this um, pretty closely is you know, you can always, frankly, explain, explain these divergences um, on legal grounds. Well, this was, you know, under the Administrative Procedure Act, and it was different. And, you know, but we can all see, and I think the public sees, you know, that there's clearly room for a judge to put his political considerations in the law. I mean, even something like overturning precedent, you're supposed to not do it very much. But the test for whether you should do it is like, is the current regime, you know, is it workable? Well, you know, people will disagree whether it's workable. Are there are there people who rely on it, reliance interests that mean that we shouldn't overturn it? You know, those are totally subjective things that become subsumed by your political preferences. I would just say, I mean, Roe versus Wade is interesting, overturning it, because on the one hand, the Supreme Court did something unpopular, and it overturned, you know, 50 years of it was the entity protecting abortion rights in the states. On the other hand, it just returned it to the political branches. So it wasn't forcing anyone to do anything that they didn't want to. It just said, OK, state legislatures, you guys can create the laws that you want to. It, would, it wouldn't even be possible to defy the Supreme Court's decision if you wanted to, because what does it mean? It just means the states can now set their own policy. On the affirmative action decision, they are forcing you know universities to do something they don't want to do. Um, But they're forcing them to do something they don't want to do that's fairly popular. And, you know, at least outside of the small parts of the country, you know, college towns. It's not popular in college towns, but it's popular in the rest of the country. And so can they force them to do it? Probably, you know, but it's going to take, you know, a lot of schools trying to get around it, then um, going to court and lower court judges, you know, if they wanted to, they could kind of kick the can down the road. We'll see what the Biden administration Department of Education does but the so i would say you know those are kind of flipped examples cuz the affirmative action one yeah. is popular abortion one not popular but the affirmative action one involves the court compelling something to happen whereas the abortion one didn't so yeah. when it, when it comes to those liberals like alina kagan on the
1: court and you mentioned that she's been a little bit um inconsistent or incoherent and i don't this is sort of i wouldn't say devil's advocacy but i I do hear this critique a lot, and I'm not necessarily qualified to adjudicate it, that liberal justices on the Supreme Court tend to, they tend to be outcomes-oriented. Like, there is a kind of judicial philosophy, I suppose you'd call it a philosophy, that rulings are good if they promote progressive outcomes, or just outcomes, or outcomes that are in the direction of equality and equity. That doesn't seem very principled to me from like a procedural standpoint. Um, But to what extent do you think that that critique is legitimate? Is that kind of what liberal, how how at least some liberals view the Supreme Court? It should only do things that are good and we're the ones who decide what are good outcomes? And we're here to make the world a better place through judicial
2: rulings. I think um, it's definitely the case that liberal jurisprudence is more outcome-oriented, which is not totally indefensible, right? I mean, um, you know, the idea that, like, this case should be resolved in a way that's in the national interest, like lots of legal tests involve things, like is it in the public interest to grant an injunction? So, you know, to some extent, that is the case. And I would also mention, you know, one justice stands out on the Republican side for being kinda similar is Sam Alito. I mean, Samuel Alito kinda probably more than anyone else. Like Justice Thomas is like really rigorous about his, you know, constitutional views and can come out in totally unpredictable ways. Samuel Alito, you know, is a is a is a judge and um and is not unfair, but he's probably more than any of the conservative judges the most consistently gonna come out uh, how the Republican Party wants him to come out, which you know, once again, I would say could be defensible if you if you really believe what the Republican Party thinks and think that's in the public interest. Originalism tries to restrain this, um, the idea that we can just interpret the Constitution as it was written, that will give judges less discretion. In practice, you know, it doesn't always doesn't always restrain it, but but I, so anyway, I think to your question, yes, broadly that's um a part of liberal jurisprudence and um you know and it's not necessarily something to be ashamed of but it is a it is a big difference
0: well so so let me just like inject which is my role in this podcast and like inject some good nihilism into this because i mean i think like what's 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 uh uh what is ultimately fascinating to this in all of this to me is you know you alluded to um uh, that, that Hume passage, uh, about legitimacy. And we'll, we'll, we'll link to Inventing the People, the Edmund Morgan book, uh, in the show notes. We've done it so many times on the pod. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's the que- it's the, the insight that sort of legitimacy is, uh, something that floats on thin air to a certain extent. Like you can, you can ensure legitimacy through, uh, compulsion, Um, and as you said in the American system, you know, it's the other two branches that have the, the ability to actually compel outcomes. Supreme court doesn't. Um, and then you, just what you were, you and Shadi were just talking about this question of where do, where do judgments come from? And uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's an important point for, for listeners to keep in mind is that there's nothing wrong with Ilana, uh, Ilana Kagan, uh, saying this is what justice is. I'm the Supre- I'm, a, I'm a justice <laughs> on the Supreme Court. Like, therefore, this is just, and I'm going to rule that way. And then it's just like, oh, well, it's a matter of, that's just your opinion, man.
1: But, you know, their
0: opinion counts more than other people's Sorry, opinions. Sorry, Demir, just- is that
1: actually okay? I just want to... Yeah, um, I think it is,
0: because I, because that's what I'm getting at, is that, that this is what I want to push at. And, you know, I think get all of us sort of thinking about this. Is that is that, again, it's... it's um, on the one hand, we're talking about, about uh, the Supreme Court's legitimacy and how it gets things done within the context of our constitutional system, but but a deeper question is is you know uh, um, it's all politics, isn't it? Like, I mean, I think that's what I get away from 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 most of you know from reading you pretty closely and a lot of these arguments is that it comes down to um, that Supreme Court justices. And especially the chief Justice, uh, if they are to be successful and if they're to maintain and sustain the uh, capacity of the institution that they inhabit and embody, uh, they have to be really wily politicians And you know your one of your very recent columns um, I think makes a pretty persuasive case that uh, that John Roberts is a Really savvy politician in all of this now there's a lot there, and shoddy jump in however you want because i i think i've I've gored several cows about justice and the meaning of and the inherent meaning of the law and stuff in there but i i i, I want to sort of i want to sort of grapple about with that well let me just say its one, one of the thing. most fascinating thing go ahead Jason
2: well, I mean it comes down to i would say the separation the separation of powers, and it's important, i think everyone agrees that power be separated so that no, no one institution gets too much power. That's sort of, sort of like a balance of power between different parts of society. And I was reading, you know, it used to be that like the king, the commons and the nobles was a natural uh, separation of power. Um, you know, the, the, the few, the many and the one. You know, there's different ways that societies have carved up power uh, and interests within their society and made them balance against each other. Robert Dahl, in this Democracy and His Critics books, he points out, you know, we've reinterpreted that as the separation of what kind of power are you exercising? So our our judiciary and legislature and executive isn't the king and the one doesn't represent the king or the nobility and whatnot. They all represent everybody, kind of, but they're exercising different kinds of power. And so it's important that the judiciary is seen as exercising judgment. You know, that's one part of Of um, the power of the state, you know it it makes laws, um, it it spends money, it enforces it, and then when disputes arise, um, it does um, you know it adjudicates them, and so it's important that what is being done is adjudication, um, you know, so that the power is separate. That's that's why you often hear people you used to hear the right saying the court was acting like a legislature. Now the left is saying the court is acting like a legislature. That's saying you know, the power is no longer properly separated. Um, Okay, but the left wanted the
1: Supreme Court to act as a legislator. That was, like, precisely the point. Like, if you have... Like, this is... uh, Not to state the obvious, but um, you want the court to act in an excessive, overreaching way if they're going to promote the things that you support.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean... Totally. Like I said, I think it's total hypocrisy. I mean, you now have have, you know, for example, on one of the cases this year, 303 Creative about a, a a businesswoman's right to refuse to make a wedding website for same sex couples because she felt that was compelled speech under the First Amendment for a cause she didn't agree with. Now you have liberals saying, you know, it was a pre-enforcement challenge. Nobody ever prosecuted her or fined her. And yet she's in court. You know, that used to be a, a conservative line that, you know, the courts should not hear pre-enforcement challenges standing. It should be harder to have standing in court. But it's become something that's totally, um, totally normal and, and normalized and been used in civil rights and First Amendment litigation for a long time. So you have total reversal. OK, it's totally hypocritical and interest driven for sure. I'm just saying that the. Um, separation of powers system depends on, you know, a different kind of power being exercised. And I think it yeah. will be less legitimate if it appears that the um, judiciary is exercising some kind of, of um, which, you know, for a long time it did. <laughs> From a conservative perspective, it did. It was, ex- it was legislating. And that, was, uh, that made it less so, legitimate. So
1: adjudicating separation of powers and upholding that, you're saying that is a primary objective At least in theory, at least that's what we might want of the Supreme Court. That's very different than what Demir just said, which is it's all politics. It's all outcomes oriented. Like there is there isn't there is inherent content to the law. I mean, I'm I'm thinking also about. Wow, am I misunderstanding?
0: I mean, I, I, it's that's not that wasn't exactly what I said, but I do want to talk about the inherent content of the law because I think that's super interesting. But you're saying,
1: you said it was all politics. Well, I was just about to
0: jump in and say that you know, like, I mean, the fact that 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 you have uh, you know uh, liberal pressure groups and conservative pressure groups uh, making political claims about the inherent nature of the court one way or the other sort of uh, is a kind of damned if you don't, da- damned if you do, damned if you don't thing that that is necessarily the case. We spend a lot of time sweating over the political balance on the court because again uh it's a political it's a political fight and we we i think in our sort of high school version of the court we have this idea again as you're saying Shadi, that there's that there is justice and there is the law and the supreme court somehow floats on a, so, somehow floats on a cloud and makes uh educated and um uh you know uh how do I put it, like disinterested judgments based on, you know, like pure logic or something like that. But that's simply not the case. And it's never should be a pretense.
1: There should be at least a pretense to some amount of disinterest, but also the law and justice are not the same thing. You said that. Okay, we we can.
0: But we can we can we can debate that one. But hold on just on that on pretense, because I think this is important. And this gets back to politics, because why should there be a pretense? And this is what I think Jason's getting at and Jason jump in whenever, is that pretense is really important. And a sly and good leader of the Supreme Court will play with that pretense and balance left and right in order to ensure that the institution of the court, which is all that matters, the institution of the court being able to play its role as it's understood in the sort of balance of power is preserved. Because otherwise, politics will tear it apart. So it is a whole game of pretense and and sleight of hand and all sorts of stuff. Whereas the content of the law... You know, is part of the tools you have at your disposal to 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 basically ensure legitimacy. Well, Jason, jump I, in. I mean, or Shadi, okay, go I'll ahead. just
1: very quickly just to, an analogy here. Well, I think pretense is something that is required for civilization to function. But so, for example, if you're having people over for a dinner party, y- you know, you offer up the pretense that you like the people that you invited, and that if someone brought a plus one without your permission that you're going to welcome them and they're gonna they're gonna be equal members on the table despite your personal feelings towards them like this is how we serve like this is necessary we don't want a dinner party where the host gives up pretense this is
0: more than politeness though this is politics is what i'm getting at this is not that anyway jason i don't know I feel like that's not the right metaphor, Shadi. Like it's it's that's yeah, I mean, far too
2: I mean, look, I don't want to I don't want to overdo. I mean, I think John Roberts is a good judge and is judging, you know, according to the law, but I think there's a lot of um give in in some of these things. I mean, one example that I gave was there was this independent state legislatures case um which had to do with um you know, which goes back to Bush v. Gore when um, the Florida Supreme Court ordered a recount and the Supreme Court stopped the recount, and some justices, not a majority, but some, including Rehnquist, Thomas, and Scalia, said, "You know, this the the Constitution says the legislature sets the election rules. You can't have the court just like order a recount that has no basis in what the legislature said." So anyway. The, that that became a hot political topic after Trump tried to overturn the the January, the the election, and culminated in the January sixth riot, where people said, if the court takes this case, you know, they're going to be greenlighting another Trump coup. In fact, you know, that's really not the case. But there is a, a legitimate constitutional debate about how much power does the legislature have? Can can some other branch in a state just make the election rules? And the the court, uh, you know, and so it took this appeal from North Carolina. Uh, to decide this, because North Carolina's legislature had made a map, and the Supreme Court said this is a gerrymander. The North Carolina Supreme Court said this is a gerrymander. In the interim, Republicans in North Carolina won elections for the North Carolina Supreme Court, so it became a Republican majority on the Supreme Court, which reversed the claim that it was a gerrymander. So there's a good argument that this was moot at the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court no longer needed to decide the case, but Roberts wanted to decide the case because I mean, I'm I'm speculating here, but I don't think they had to decide the case, and Roberts is often a hawk about do we have to decide this? Okay, we don't have to, we won't but in this case they wanted to decide it, and it totally reassured liberals. They're like, Okay, the Supreme Court is institutionalist, it doesn't support uh a, a Trump coup. Um so that's an example of the kind of thing that I think sort of got one um Roberts credit. You know, he's being totally faithful to the law. He you know, his opinion doesn't say that much. It just says like yeah, there's some limits on what legislators can do, but also they can't just do whatever they want. Okay, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, he didn't endorse the radical independent state legislature theory," and um, so that's an example, you know, of making people feel more secure. Um, but and it's also that- an
0: example. It's also an example of though of of of, and I think this is important. I mean, I I, I forget if we did this on the podcast or if it was in a previous thing, but it, it's it's so important to to know the politics of which cases. You choose to hear you do that with a political sort of eye to what you're trying to do and then the judgment itself you of course it's not going to be contrary to to precedent or at least not egregiously so because then you're also undermining your legitimacy but always in the back of the 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 mind here is not is not what we like to think of as this sort of high-minded principle deliberation, and behind it is always politics and this question of legitimacy and legitimation.
2: No, I mean, to your, to your question of what cases do you take, for example, the Supreme Court, you know, maybe it was 10 years ago, I forget the exact year it decided Heller, it said, look, there's some Second Amendment right to bear arms. You know, there's some basic, you, you have a personal right to, to have a firearm. You know, the, the, the state laws and the lower court judgments were a total mess on that. And, um, what's the scope of it? Who can you ban? How much, how much, you know, can you make them wait this long or how much can you regulate it? It was a mess. You knew there was some right, but it hadn't actually changed in practice very much. It was sort of, and then, um, the Supreme Court didn't go in and clarify that. It had lots of opportunities to take new cases where it could have, you know, put teeth on this right and said what it, what it means. But Roberts, you know, Probably what happened when the court was closely divided is the conservatives didn't want to take a case like that because they didn't want to put it in front of Roberts because they thought he might then limit the Second Amendment right. They finally took this case once there's a 6-3 majority, right? There's uh, Amy Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh are on the court. There's a 6-3 majority. Roberts isn't going to get to, you know, they, kn- <laughs> they know they have a, a chance to make a ruling like the one that Thomas did in Bruin uh, last term you know, making a very robust uh, Second Amendment right to bear arms. So that's that's very much Demir is right. You know, what cases you take is itself a political calculation on the court.
1: You know, so I'm just thinking out loud here, like as you're talking, Jason, it does, it does remind me a little bit of um, dueling interpretations of Islamic law and how <laughs> clerics and jurists um, – you know there is a there is a repository of law. There is an Islamic legal tradition. It's there and it has to be studied in a very serious way. Um, there are very um, exacting qualifications that a jurist has to have to be able to rule on on various questions. And um, you know, in some ways, the body of American law um, is comparable. Obviously quite different for any number of reasons, but you can think of it as a body of law. It came to be in a different way and so forth. But, you know, I do, you know, I do think about it sometimes in terms of America has a civil religion. That civil religion is captured and reflected in the American constitution. And then you have a body of, in a sense, secular clerics um, who make judgments about the American civil religion as expressed in the American Constitution. It is a kind of clerical situation. If you... if you, Just if like in Iran. Willing... <laughs> <laughs> um, not ex... Well, I don't want to get to that. Not ex- it's, I wouldn't... Okay, whatever. That was a joke. <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> no, but it is interesting to like, do a kind of compare and contrast on some of these things. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this, except to say that Um, all of these things become very contentious when we're talking about religions. And to the extent that we consider um, America to be something akin to a faith, it does raise the stakes considerably. Like every decision the Supreme Court rules on is essentially making a statement about the American faith. Does that resonate at all to you? That's just me freelancing totally.
2: here, but no, totally. And I mean, um, the Fourteenth Amendment affirmative action case is a good example because for some people, like the Fourteenth Amendment, and you know, this is America's commitment to um, equality for for African Americans and for um, expiating. Um, slavery from our history. And for some people, it's like, what are you talking about? You're using the 14th Amendment to justify discrimination against, you know, other races. Um, And that that was sort of a a clear example of, of, you know, reading something like equal protection of the laws, and um, in, in a very different way, depending on sort of how you interpret the American, the American creed. I think that's, that's absolutely right.
0: But it's 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 uh, that's a, it is a good example though, Shadi, because hmm. uh, if you really then just I'm sort of, of delve into it, right? <laughs> we're proud of you too. That look, if the, the I think that the maybe the way to think about it is this though, um, insofar as that the Constitution is a holy document, uh, and I think I think that's a very fair way to think about it. Like you know, insofar as it, it has that. I mean insofar as america can exist uh we have to have some sort of near holy reverence for this thing and you see that in descriptions about it all the time um and then you have interpretations of of holy law basically and that's what you you have in basically in um uh in 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 these sorts of things i guess the 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 what's uh uh different however is that at the very base of it you know you have uh in sort of more religious law traditions you have at the at the end of the line the word of god and we don't have the word of god and so i think what what i'm getting at about law being just sort of a chain of things that sort of is 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 ultimately floating on air is just a lot more apparent in a call it more secular if not fully secular american context whereas like we can talk about first principles and at the end as we're pulling on the thread in say the Islamic context, which I'm deeply ignorant of, but at least at the very end of the thread, you have, well, not just the Quran, but the Quran is the word of God. Law is the word of God. We don't have that in the American uh, context. Okay.
1: okay. Just a clarification. The law is not itself. The legal tradition is not the word of God because um, God's word can only be understood through human uh, interpretive efforts. So, the Quran, mm-hmm. every letter and, and word of the Quran is directly from God for Muslims. But then there is this additional step of the interpreter trying to make sense of God's word and making it resonant and applicable for humans who are flawed and mortal and are dealing with complex political situations on the ground. Like, we don't actually have direct access to God's true will and intent. We can only try to divine his intent through human effort. Right? So, so here's
0: here's, here's so but let me just sort of that's that's fair. But this also underlines my point, because I would also argue not being a believer and certainly not being a Muslim that actually all law is politics at the end of the day. And you've just basically <laughs> described it right there. Now, a believer will say to me exactly well, but, 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 but at the very end of the chain you know, maybe we disagree on the interpretation of the word of God, but we have the word of God. In our context, we don't have it. We have a document written by like a
1: bunch of young dudes.
0: And so, you know what I mean? It's, 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 I I still want to push this idea. What do we gain by
1: saying it's all politics? Because I think you're trying to, you're trying to get at something and I'm so, okay, fine. It's all politics. What does that mean? What what does that tell us? Why is that so important to, to kind of have that acknowledgement?
0: I mean, we can hide it, as all good neoconservatives should. We can't speak the truth, but, you know, we're among friends here. So I feel like this yeah. is just an interesting thing to talk okay, about.
1: But what's so bad about, like, so there's different ways of looking at the political as a category. Yeah. Oftentimes people use it as a pejorative that it's all politics in the end and in a somewhat Correct. nihilistic way. Right. Oh, you know, principles don't matter. There is no such thing as justice and so forth. But there's another way of saying that. The political is, is a way just to acknowledge the reality of human decision making and frailty and the fact that we bring in subjective biases to whatever we do and that is in a sense inherently political. There's no way to really bracket off the political from any kind of human endeavor.
0: I think, well, Demir- I think the- go ahead, Jason. I mean,
2: I would I would just say if you you know, if you pull out the thread of constitutional interpretation, you get to the people, not God, you get to, you know, I think um, Hamilton used the term. Not really, though, right? Well, he used the term, the deliberate will. I mean, this is how it's justified in the Federalist Papers. He's like, there's the temporary will of the people, which could be what's popular now, and there's the deliberate will of the people as embodied in the Constitution. And, yes, if you pull on that thread, you end up with, like, a few tens of thousands of people, you know, ratifying this in 13 states, you know, which itself was a
0: political endeavor, and that's again in the inventing the people part that 's what's so great about that book because it it pulls on the thread of what is the people and what is consensus and what is legitimacy at the very at the very heart of it it's an invented category, especially in secular constitutional systems. Uh, the legitimacy is is this kind of fiction is what Morgan calls it, and he goes to great lengths to say that i 'm not doing this pejoratively, and i 'm not doing it because et cetera, et cetera. And it's a fiction. We need to survive. I grant you all of that shoddy. Why, why pull on this thread? I guess why I pull on this thread is because, um, we're, ha- we're getting into really big debates about the Supreme court and its legitimacy. And, um, I, I, you know, and a lot of those hang on these kinds of, uh, how would I put it, uh, to, to, to really think about how legitimacy of the court works it's not helpful to think about it in terms of uh pulling on that string too hard it's more helpful both strategically and analytically i think to look at what's actually happening uh what's actually happening with the rulings what's actually happening with someone like roberts as you've i think outlined in your in your cases who's being savvy about how he's ruling um and also i mean there was that other piece that you sent along uh by uh our 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 common acquaintance Sarah Isger in Politico, which talks about, again, you know, that one axis of how people don't think about the court. Everyone thinks about conservatives versus liberals, but there is a sort of institutionalist as well as the other axis of how much do you pay attention to that question of legitimacy, which actually takes you completely out of, not completely completely, because everyone's on the sort of two axis thing. They're either more institutionalists or less or more conservative or liberal, but still that's a really important thing and it's fine, Shadi. We don't have to talk about it because, you know, no. maybe we shouldn't be talking about it, but it's 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 an important thing to keep in mind. And once you think about that, you understand a little bit more how contingent a lot of this stuff is and how, how in, and okay, Shadi, to even put it in terms that maybe would be more uh, uh, amenable to whether you think about it, it lowers the temperature a little bit. If we, at least in the back of our minds, understand what the game is. And the game is one of sustaining the system and maintaining yeah. the legitimacy of things. That's all.
1: Or one could say that the voice of the people is the voice of God.
0: Right. But but as I was saying, that that for me, that's a double fallacy because I'm not a believer <laughs> and I don't believe that the voice of the people is anything either. But anyway. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus.